You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. It's a balmy, windy day outside at the moment, and uh, which is actually rather nice when you're riding along uh, to get here to share some new and interesting features of the week in terms of news. Uh, there was a bit of news this week. Uh, uh, apparently, the Australian government has invited Indonesia to train army personnel with them and have even decided that they're going to provide places for soldiers at Duntroon, which is highly exciting considering uh, uh, their role in uh, oppressing the West Papuans. Um, There was another uh, piece of interesting stuff that turned up for me in my Facebook feed, a, a November federal election you might ask. Well, one of the Green can- Greens candidates is getting ready, while the Australian Electoral Commission is calling for applications to person boosts. It might be slightly uh, jumping the gun, but uh, uh, the general view is that it's going to be uh, in at least in May next year. But uh, anything is possible from a failing and flaying federal uh, LMP government that likes to rule through gossip. Um, and then the other thing was trudge and education. Apparently it is beyond his uh, the uh, realms of uh, contention for the uh, intellectual giants uh, gracing the LNP federal benches to have our national curriculum question Anzac by asking, should we commemorate or celebrate Anzac? That's how much they want to entrench a false Western civilization mantra within our children's brains. Yes, that's what's been going on this week. There's been lots of other things as well besides COVID. Uh, This week on uh, Solidarity Breakfast, we're going to be looking at uh, what's going on in terms of uh, the protection or the Victoria National Park along uh, the Great Ocean Road. We're going to talk to Phil Ingemels from the Park Protection, a part of the Victoria National Parks Association who keeps an eye on these kind of things. Uh, We're going to hear from Dr John Minns, uh, who is uh, a member of uh, the steering committee at RAC, the Refugees Action Collective in Canberra. They held an event 
uh, around Tampa, 20 years on, refugee rights overboard. He's got a few interesting things to say that uh, have an, um, shade your views on the upcoming election, in fact. Uh, Giles from Collingwood Community Gardeners is going to give us an update about the the Collingwood farm takeover of the uh, community garden. We'll see if uh, there's been any uh, progress there. Uh, This is the week that was. Uh, We're going to hear from Edie Shepherd, who was part of the... uh, She's part of Get Up, and uh, she was part of the Life tutorial series, Indigenous Action. Uh, A little bit of an excerpt from that. You can get the full uh, Life tutorial from Life's... Uh, Facebook page that's Living Incomes for Everyone and we're going to hear how um, uh, the stuff that's being perpetrated on Indigenous lands in Australia uh, Australian companies don't feel that they have to spread the love and we're going to have a little exit from uh, the uh, LASNET Extractivism is Not Development uh, uh, Forum Uh, a little report from Ecuador uh, where our Australia, our great big Australian companies, as I said, are sharing the love. Uh, stay listening. We'll uh, be back in two shakes of a lamb's tail. 20 Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. 20 Years on the Inside, I'm Vicky Roach. And I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on 20 years of listening to our mobs on the inside as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. A lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on. To having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. And as I said, uh, we've got Phil... Uh, from the uh, Park Protection Victorian National Parks Association section. G'day, Phil. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? 
Good. Now, you put out a uh, release. Uh, it's r- r- rather nice for our, us that uh, the uh, Victorian National Parks Association keeps an eye on this section of uh, uh, the um, the politics of Victoria, that you keep an eye on what's going on with uh, uh, parks. Uh, and there's, Well, we try to. Yeah. And there's, a, there's, a, there's some legislation that uh, appeared last week in Victoria's Parliament, or this week in Victorian's Parliament, that uh, actually is being uh, uh, mooted for the Great uh, Ocean Road. Can you explain to our listeners uh, what, what they're proposing? Sure. It's more than a proposal. It's actually been going on for a couple of years, um, and there was some earlier legislation uh, last year. But the proposal uh, uh, is to um, hand over management uh, of the national parks along the Great Ocean Road to a separate authority, which is which is largely tourism-driven. So this new authority will sit above um, Parks Victoria's management of those parks. They'll still be managed as national parks, but we'll have actually two agencies looking after them, one sitting above, which is this new authority, um, and they'll be telling Parks Victoria what to do in the parks, and um, we're just not happy about that at all. Yeah, yeah. so uh, what you're really worried about is the uh, fact that the uh, parks' protection may be at risk. Yeah, they'll, they'll still have to follow the same law that protects the park, so the parks will... Uh, have the regulations that you know that, that say that you have to protect the wildlife and things like that, but it, laws can always be interpreted. And when you've got a an agency which is largely tourism driven, um, it uh, it can um, put a bit of a spin on those laws, if you like, uh, as, as to how the parks managed. And they won't have the expertise. I mean, it's it's all very well to say that they have to look after the flora and fauna and the threatened species and so on like that, but um, you need experience and, and, and uh, expertise to do that. Now, the other rather strange thing about this new organisation is that it's not like... <coughs> Parks Victoria is funded by the government, just as other government departments are. But this organisation is um, to be self-funded, so it's got to sort of hoover up um, camping fees and, and things like that um, and try and run its organisation that way. So it's actually can be driven to try and find ways to make money. Ah, yes, but so that, that, that uh, it's a, that's an interesting point because if you look at uh, what happened at uh, Federation Square, that was one of the arguments that was put forward for the um, Australian, bil- uh, uh, the Apple building, right in, plonked right in the middle of uh, the Federation Square because uh, it w- it's supposed to be a self-funding uh, management uh uh, arrangement and of course if you put in a commercial entity like Apple into the middle of a public facility then of course there's spin-offs in terms of uh, uh, money from uh, for the management organisation and one assumes there may be something of that kind of complexion for such a self-funded agency. Yeah, it's a worry, and it, it, it gives that sort of thing. And the thing is that the, the annoying thing is that it doesn't need to be that way. There are clearly problems on the Great Ocean Road. There are heaps of tourists, there are traffic jams, there are bad toilets and all that sort of thing. But the organisation could have um, uh, taken up the, the, the sort of hotchpots of little council allotments and campgrounds and things like that and maybe improved their management there. 
Um, they could have and probably should have been given control of the road itself, but they haven't been given that. So I don't know how they're going to deal with the traffic jams and so on. But the um, but they just could have then had a, a a memorandum of understanding, just an agreement with Parkage Victoria, that they would consult on solving sort of issues that that are you know mutually related to the whole tourism thing, and that would have that would have worked perfectly well, and it would have been a simple arrangement. Um, but another thing they should have done and could have done and is to just increase funding to, to Parks Victoria anyway to manage our parks right well, across the state. So what you're really um, saying is that uh, the interests of uh, Victoria Parks is going to be uh, subordinate to this agency? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, it's, uh, we have to see how it works. Um, they've, uh, they hopefully will be appointing some good people to the board or have appointed There's actually a board has been appointed. This is a kind of second bit of legislation, as I said, that, that sort of uh, details how the, the, the sort of the law, how the complexity of that sort of double bit of management works. But the, um, uh, they, it could potentially work well, but it's sort of set up in a way that is dangerous and, and f- favours the possibility of, of, of somebody that really wants to put developments into parks to allow that to happen. So um, we can imagine that Port Campbell, which is a vast paddocks, we can imagine some sort of uh, hotel complex or something of that sort. Is that what you think? I, I really don't think that's intended at the moment, and I think under this government that wouldn't happen. But really, when you really set up laws and set up structures to manage land, You've really got to take in, take take the long term into account, and and the change of government in particular could um, uh, it, it would make it easier for them to um, to to really uh, just do things in parks that are really unnecessary. We, we want developments, to, tourism developments, any significant sort of accommodation and that sort of stuff. It, it just should be outside parks. Once you start cutting away at a park, um, they're, they're struggling anyway to maintain the complex ecosystems that they that they protect anyway um, and every little every little you've really got to we've really got to be moving particularly under climate change which is adding all sorts of impacts to our parks you've really got to put in when you put in new legislation sorry when you put in new legislation um, it's really got to be strengthening legislation not weakening legislation mm. uh, yeah uh, so um, this uh, currently Parks Victoria controls um, uh, Port Campbell National Park, Great Ocean Road National Park, Bay of Islands Coastal Park, Point Addis Marine National Park, 12 Apostles Marine National Park and Archers Marine Sanctuary. So this is these are the areas that are now going to be um, uh, uh, prim- primarily controlled by this agency. That's right. Yeah, they'll be either entirely controlled or just or sections, large sections of them. Uh, Great Hotway National Park was the one that you, you missed in there, but that's all right. The, um, the, it the wasn't on your list. Right. It's your fault. Oh, it's on my list. Yeah, Great Hotway. Right. <laughs> Sorry. Um, the, uh, that's okay. The, um, uh, the the really odd thing, or the other odd thing about this, is that they have been given this organisation, which is designed to. Improve you know, it's just to improve the way tourism works there and how the area is managed. They've been given authority over the marine parks. We just can't absolutely 
understand the reason why they would would have added those areas as well. It's quite bizarre. I've got heaven knows what they want to do there. What, what someone intended no, to do there. That's very interesting because, uh, and we'll, we'll follow up the uh, uh, actions that have been going on down near Geelong and Port Campbell over the uh, offshore exploration for gas, which is also related, I presume, to uh, what's going on in uh, this legislative. Uh, uh, no, it doesn't, it doesn't fit into this bit of legislation. It's a different thing altogether, and it's not something, something that I've, I've actually got my head around somebody else in their organisation. Yeah, well, I'll follow it up and we'll find out. Yeah, absolutely. No, do. It's worth, it's worth just definitely definitely doing that. I'll, I might just add one more thing, if you don't mind. Yeah. The, um, <clears throat> over the last two years, because this is, there's been a public consultation process on this, and we have asked people during that consultation process all the way up to the highest levels of government and to to please, what is the reason for doubling up on national park management, for having an authority over the authority that manages our national parks? We are yet to get an answer. We've been asking this question for two years. I just thought I'd put that there. It's, um, do, do, it's do, you, do you kind of... Does uh, Parks Victoria expect to have job losses? No, they, well, they've guaranteed... Um, it's not in the law... Um, it's very hard to have laws about who you employ, but um, they've been told by the minister that there will be no people uh, losing their job because this organisation will be contracting Parks Victoria to manage the parks, oh, but they'll just have to do yeah. what they're told. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so who's um, the minister what... involved? Oh, it's the environment, the environment minister, Lily D'Ambrosio, but I think it's largely driven by 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 the tourism people in Victoria. Yeah, the, I'm not sure that she was. Um, yeah, yeah, that's okay. It's I, all right. I I'm mean, the buck sure, always not... stops. Is uh, I know that in modern politics at the moment, you know, the buck doesn't always stop with the minister, but... <laughs> <laughs> I think this might be the case. But she's a very, I mean, she's a very, she's a good minister, but she's a, she's an overly busy minister. The, the poor, this is uh, Lily Ambrose, she's, she's unfortunately got the whole climate thing, the um, the whole, the uh, the energy portfolio um, these are terribly important folios, and and uh, I think to to expect a minister to have that as well as looking after biodiversity in Victoria and uh, how that how that's affected by all sorts of things, fire, by visitor management, and just the the whole um, thing. It's a huge portfolio, and um, I think um, it's uh, it, it probably should be broken up. So so. Um, uh... Victorian National Parks Association wants people to do what about this? Um, I think the best thing to do would be um, just to write to the minister and say that, that um, concerned. you're not happy with this. Yeah, yeah. That the the Parks Victoria should maintain responsibility for park management. Um, that this is a really unfortunate precedent. It could be a precedent applied to other parks in Victoria. Um, and that our national park should be properly funded with the proper body managing them. Mm. Thanks for talking to us today, Phil. No, thank you. No, I appreciate it. Thanks. And, yeah. Hi, we're the Marindas, and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Thank you. That's a cheery little idea, isn't it? And uh, we're going to move on to uh, 
talked uh, here from Dr. John Mims. Now, Dr. John Mims is uh, an associate professor in politics. Oh, in fact, there's an introduction to the entire thing. But he is uh, part of RAC Cam- Canberra, and they had a forum recently called Tampa 20 years on you remember of course Tampa was the uh, the ship that actually stopped to pick up the uh, refugees on the sinking boat uh, which was then used as a uh, cat's paw in uh, Howard's uh, return to uh, the prime ministership uh, politics 20 years ago now 20 years is a long time for some people in fact some people were not even born hopefully there's some people listening to this program right now or this station right now that uh, uh um, weren't born 20 years ago <laughs> but it was a, a pivotal moment and still playing out in our political landscape anyway Dr John Mims uh, has some fascinating things to say I found them fascinating anyway around the purpose of uh, flogging uh, the anti-refugee uh Mantra coming out of the national, the Liberal National Party, and uh, with uh, the camp followers uh, in Labor. Instead, introduced Dr. John Mins, who is an emeritus professor of the ANU and steering committee member of RAC. So, John has been tirelessly advocating for refugee rights at the grassroots level and through RAC for decades. Can't wait to hear insights, John. Quite some years ago now, quite a long time ago, I was asked to give a speech at a refugee rally. And I said to the people gathered there that the policies that we were there protesting about were born of political opportunism, that they were nurtured by some of the most vile and racist sentiments which Australia is capable of producing, that they existed on that day in international infamy and that they would be remembered only with utter shame. And I'm afraid to say that years later, all of those things are true today. Political opportunism. I mean, John Howard 20 years ago clearly, clearly employed fears of Australians about people of colour, about refugees, about people coming in large numbers, fears of being swamped, fears about their jobs, fears about terrorism, and fears about Islam. He employed all of those to gain some percentage points in the polls. And he was rewarded for that. If you actually look at the polls and the way they changed, it wasn't just 9-11. The polls had swung to him well before 9-11, actually just after Temper and before 9-11. And it's clear that that had an impact. Fast forward 20 years, and what do we see? We see the same kind of political opportunism being employed again. So the first reaction of the government, when they were asked about the roughly 5,000 Hazara refugees who are currently in Australia, but do not have permanent residents, who are on temporary and very precarious visas, and who now very, very clearly cannot go back to Afghanistan, the first response, the instinctive response of the government was to say, no, they would not be given permanent residence at all. 20 years ago, the Defence Minister at the time, Peter Reith, uh, said that some of the refugees on the Tampa and others coming at the time could well be terrorists. With no evidence then, no evidence ever produced since, 
and completely illogically when you think about how a terrorist might choose to enter the country, getting on a leaky boat might not be the best strategy for doing it. But again, what do we have today? Actually, in the last, just in the last week, the current defence minister, Peter Dutton, said that some of those attempting to leave Afghanistan, even those who'd worked for the Australian army, might have switched sides and now be supporters of Islamic State and therefore potential terrorists if they're allowed into Australia. Again, no evidence and no logic to that position at all. But it's political opportunism and it's the same pattern to attempt to dredge a percentage point or two in the polls for an upcoming election by bashing refugees and by once again employing all of those fears and all of that racism that's inherent in it. The second thing I said was that these policies had been nurtured by racism and I think it's hard to imagine how in a country with a history like Australia, there could not be a substratum of racism which could be employed by unscrupulous politicians. I mean, this was a country, after all, which is founded on Indigenous dispossession. It's a country where the first act of its federal parliament in 1901 was the White Australia policy. And for more than half of the history since then, that policy stayed intact. So, of course, there would be a stratum of racism to be exploited. This is a country which began the 20th century with a racist policy, and it began the 21st century with a racist policy in the Pacific Solution and the other associated elements of the refugee policy. Precisely why this kind of racism was attached to refugees particularly, and why refugees became a political football over the next, over the last 20 years, uh, is something that I'll come to in a moment that the policies exist in international infamy. That, I think, was very clear even 20 years ago, and it's become even more clear in the last two decades. Uh, every organisation, international organisation associated with refugees or associated with human rights, pretty much has condemned Australian policies. That has only increased over time. The UNHCR, the uh, United Nations Human Rights Committee, the Special Rapporteur on Torture, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going to go right through them, but yes, international infamy. The government has been very keen to say that Australia's refugee policy is, if not the best in the world, perhaps the second best and the second most generous, that we're way up there with the best refugee policies that there are. That is obviously a ridiculous sleight of hand because there are dozens of countries with vastly more refugees in their countries than we have. And most of those countries are much poorer countries than we are. But I want to turn that around a little and let's compare Australia's refugee policy with the worst in the world. And when you trawl through some of the worst refugee policies in the world, you can't go much further, I think, than Viktor Orban's Hungary, certainly in relation to Europe. Viktor Orban, for those who don't know of him, is a far right, incredibly racist, incredibly xenophobic uh, leader of Hungary. He said that he didn't view them as Muslim refugees, but as Muslim invaders. Just in the last few months, the European Court of Justice has found that Orban's refugee policy of using military and police force to prevent the entry of asylum seekers into Hungary 
to apply for asylum and to force them back over the border into Serbia was illegal under European law and morally reprehensible. Now, Australia has been doing that, exactly that, using the Navy since 2013. They also condemned him for having detention centres set up on the border for refugees to have to go to in order to apply for asylum. And he had to eventually get rid of those, those detention centres. Well, Australia has been doing that since 1992. So never mind comparing us with the best refugee policies and the worst, we don't actually come up very well when we're compared with the worst in the world. So international infamy indeed. There is an important question, I think, which I think has been already raised uh, in the comments by Nardal that needs to be addressed, is what happened around this time that made the refugee issue so connected with dragging up all those old, someone said in the chat, I think, neo-colonialist racist ideas. I think I would identify the 1980s as a crucial turning point. I think the 1980s had two things happening simultaneously that changed the way that this argument, this discussion took place. One was that it was clearly the end of post-war prosperity. There'd been two recessions. By the 1980s, we had the highest unemployment since the 1930s, since the Great, the Great Depression. There were all sorts of changes structurally in companies and in government departments, casualization, outsourcing, all sorts of things that meant that the idea of a job for life was gone. There were also government changes in policy. It, a neoliberal policy started to make people less secure. All sorts of elements of the social security network, the safety network, were pulled away. And for the first time in the 1980s ever in Australia, since the questions were asked, people, when asked the question of whether their kids' lives would be better than their own, said no. So there's a deep economic insecurity happening. And the second factor is that there's also a deep demographic and cultural shift happening. Because while Australia was formally in place until 1966, it didn't really end until the 1970s. And then we began to get in the immigration intake, a large immigration intake, more and more people from non-European backgrounds, particularly from Asia and to a lesser extent, the Middle East. The combination of those two things, deep economic change and insecurity and deep cultural insecurity amongst white Australia produced an explosive mixture which unscrupulous politicians could easily uh, utilise. And in 1988, I mean, there are a number of people uh, who were involved in that, who were saying Australia was being Asianized against our will that elites were bringing Asians into the country against the interests of ordinary people. But in 1988, John Howard, then the opposition leader, decided to dip his toe into that water and said, yes, Asian immigration was going too fast and should be slowed down. He legitimised that argument to a certain extent. But what he didn't expect was the reaction from business, which hated it absolutely slammed him. And it's one of the reasons he lost the Liberal Party leadership for a time in 88. And the reason was that he had attacked 
two fundamental pillars of the way Australian society and the Australian economy was developing. Business always wants higher immigration levels. It constitutes about half our GDP growth. And also by the 1980s, it was absolutely apparent that the orientation of the Australian economy was going to be towards Asia. That was irrevocable by that point. So politicians in the mainstream learned a lesson. They learned that you couldn't openly, at least, attack large-scale immigration, and you couldn't attack Asian immigration in particular. But within a few years, we had mandatory detention of asylum seekers and a handful of asylum seekers, two or 300 coming from Cambodia. Suddenly, there was barbed wire going up, and there was no reaction from business. There was no negative consequence. You could play with the issue of asylum seekers and refugees, and you could call up from the proverbial vasty deep those racist sentiments, and you could try to profit electorally and politically from it without the economic and political consequences that, would, that followed earlier by attacking Asian immigrants. And since then, as a result, refugees have become an opportunity to win votes, attacking them, that is. And so we've had three elections, federal elections, in which refugees, astonishingly, have been one of the top three, or in one case, four issues in those elections, 2001, 2010, and 2013. That is extraordinary. And that is where I think it came from. And the final point, really, that I wanted to make, and I said at the beginning that I thought these policies would be remembered only with utter shame. It wasn't much of a prediction, to be honest, when I made it, because many millions of Australians, even then, viewed those policies with utter shame. But the number of Australians thinking that has actually increased. It depends on the question you ask people. But if you say, should indefinite detention continue for the people who've been detained for eight years, a clear majority of Australians say no. If you ask, should offshore detention continue indefinitely, clear majority say no. If you ask, should kids ever be in detention, majority say no. If you ask, should people be brought to Australia for medical treatment, clear majority say no. Not on every question, but on those questions, it's clear that the utter shame felt by millions has increased. For those of us who've been involved in this campaign for a long time, it would be, we wouldn't be human if we didn't ask ourselves every now and then, has it been worth it? And I'd like to phrase it like this. The utter shame that we today feel about these policies that our country carries out this inhumanity and cruelty towards people asking for our help would be much greater. We would feel much greater shame if there'd been no resistance to them. Then we would have to be ashamed not only of our government, but of ourselves. And so we are the resistance along with the refugees themselves who've been fighting inside detention for many years, we are the resistance to those things. I am not in love, but I'm open to persuasion. Mm.
When you think of community, uh, think of 3CR. When you think of radio, think of 3CR. This is Joan Armour Trading asking you to support your community radio station, 3CR, the only alternative. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast. And, uh, yeah, fascinating stuff. That was uh, Dr John Minns from uh, talking about uh, how uh, the refugee uh, um, policy and um, fits in to the jigsaw puzzle of uh, LMP and general politics in Australia. Uh, it, it just always seems so uh, unutterably... Uh, uh, cruel and unnecessary. But anyway, we're going to move on and we're going to look at the uh, uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners and uh, what's going on in that space. And we've got Giles, who is one of the members of the uh, uh, Collingwood Community Gardeners group. G'day, Giles. How are you? Hi, Annie. How are you going? Thanks for having me. Yeah. Can you give us an idea of what's been going on uh, since the Collingwood uh Children's Farm decided that uh, they're going to lock the gates for OH&S concerns at the uh, community garden. Yeah, so that was a while ago now in uh, May and uh, we haven't uh, had any resolution to that nor have we had a uh, plan announced from the, the Children's Farm, just um, intermittent updates and sort of changing changing stories. So initially it was the um, OH&S um, safety issues that were given as a reason for, for closing the gardens. But um, as the gardeners uh, all banded together around this and, and uh, you know, after the shock of kind of being told, you know, they weren't able to access the gardens, we kind of organised to, um, you know, work through the issues, try and get what needed to be fixed, fixed. And the farm rejected that um, pretty straightforwardly and so we haven't been able to get back onto the plots uh, since May. Yeah which is really unfortunate especially in lockdown. Yeah I mean it's just been a massive toll on a lot of people's mental health because there was something that um, you know people living in uh, like I do in apartments that don't have any green space or gardens um, in in the Yarra area um, in the Yarra City Council or in the Abbotsford Collingwood area especially um, you know, rely on to be able to go and um, spend some time uh, outside, you know, tending, tending the gardens that they've had. Maybe some of us have had, had gardens for only a year or two. Some of, some of us have had gardens for a lot longer. And so even just the, 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 the lack of warning, uh, you know, taking that sort of activity away from people during the pandemic has been pretty, pretty hard on, on um, a lot of people's um, mental health, that's for sure. It's a really important uh, community initiative, the uh, uh, community garden, which has been going on for uh, you know over forty years. Uh, yeah. The the idea that the uh, children's farm, which was also something that was fought for by the mm. community, or else it wouldn't be mm. there still, be, mm. um, is uh, because they have some sort of plan that they think will. Uh, help their business model is really unfortunate, isn't it? Yeah, it seems to be a, um, a, a kind of 
conflict between a social enterprise model for community, which is about, you know, um, I guess what I would say is a more like paternalistic approach to community where people get told what they're allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do. And the original idea of the garden was allotments where they, uh, you know, would come down, volunteer, keep things running, uh, fix things when they needed fixing. And, um, you know, the, the children's farm is somewhat uh, separate to that and, and, it, and it was a garden and an allotment garden that grew up alongside the, the farm and obviously is a part of that farm uh, farmland area down by the Yarra Banks. But um, it really doesn't um, have the, the same um, sort of remit, I suppose, as the children's farm itself, especially as it's being run today. And, and that's the issue is that it feels like we're being treated like um, tenants, you know, like renters, essentially, who've been told, um, oh, we're, you know, we're, we're repossessing the, the property you've been leasing, so you need to get out and that's it. But, it, you know, not even that because we weren't even allowed to grab our stuff before we were locked out, essentially. It's pretty outrageous. Superfluous yeah. to requirements. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It feels very... Um, uh, well, to be honest, it feels like the opposite of community to us, that's for sure. So um, the plan now is to take and gather the, the petition that we've been running um, in, in the time um, since we've been locked out. So there's about 3,000 signatories of a petition we've had online um, on a megaphone petition and deliver that to the Committee of Management, hopefully the next week or so, um, at a, an event online, which they would um, you know, hopefully uh, want to attend. And we've invited... Richard Wynn's office to come down to that uh, meeting as well, as well as the federal member for Melbourne um, and then obviously the local councillors and Stephen Jolly's told me he'd, he'll definitely be there. So um, there'll be an event that we'll, we'll um, publicise in the next few days uh, with a time and date for a public um, presentation of the, of the petition, um, which basically only has three... Um, Three, de- three key demands, which is to re- reinstate access to the garden to address any safety issues and um, to allow uh, the garden to, to, to thrive. Uh, so people can find out about this uh, online event from the uh, Facebook page? Yeah, well, if they sign the Megaphone petition, they'll get an email about it in the next couple of days. So the Megaphone petition is called um, Protect Collingwood, Child- uh, Collingwood Community Garden. Sorry. Um, and that's the megaphone petition. Um, I could maybe send that through to you, um, but the email will go out through the, the petition um, and there'll be an event online um, where we deliver the petition to the Committee of Management and hopefully one of their representatives is there to, to receive it. Yeah, great. The, there was, before I let you go, one of the uh, mm. things is uh, that was uh, a tactic, which was that mm. uh, the... Uh, there would be an increase in um, community gardeners becoming members of the Collingwood Children's Farm because Mm -hmm. uh, you lost your ability to have... uh, You you were on the steering committee. Yeah. How did that go? Um, Well, the the committee of management is is a... um, a manager of public land, of the Crown land, which is the banks of the Yarra River. And that is um, voted in by the members of the Collingwood Children's Farm, and we're all members of the Children's Farm. And so the um, uh, annual general meeting of the Children's Farm needs to be held in the next few months, um, and we'll all be attending that and making our case for the mismanagement, essentially, of this whole issue. I mean, 
sure the um, farm is a bigger question, but the mismanagement of this particular part of the of the uh, children's farm and of the Collingwood Community Gardens is a real issue for us, and we just want representation on there for gardeners um, so that these kind of issues don't uh, ever occur again and we can just get back to gardening. Thanks for talking to us, Giles. Thanks so much for having me, Annie. All the best.
You're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and uh, that's such a cute song, Fisherman's Blues by the Waterboys. And, uh, of course, coming up next is the very exciting This Is The Week That Was. A week, Solidarity, Becky Team Lister, when the Greens exposed their total divorce from reality by promising a huge, great big new tax Great big new tax, as former big supremo tiny a bit more for the bosses would have warned on massive profits and mining windfalls if they held the balance of power and supported a socialist party government. A flirtation with insanity, thankfully nipped in the bud by socialist party supremo and would-be big supremo Anthony Albinguzi, who dismissed the brain fade as madness and said... No, his policy was not to tax the filthiest rich or the filthy rich, but to slash the taxes they don't pay now. On that, Anthony boasted, the Socialist Party is in lockstep with the government. Clearly, the Greens exposed they have no idea of how the greatest little economic order of them all works, how the delicate flower that is the economy works. But we don't need to say that. It was said for us in a brilliant rebuttal of the madness by no less an expert that our old mate Innes will cost the workers of the Trublawazi Industry Profits Group, who within a few hours published a brilliantly logical argument as a feature piece in, you guessed it, the Trublawazi Capitalist Review. A fundamentally flawed and ill-informed policy that seeks only to soak the rich. Oh dear, how flawed and ill-informed can you get? There is, of course, in us of course, a populist appeal in calling for more taxes on billionaires and super profits. That's an old song that has been played many times. But if that is the target, surely it would be honest to first acknowledge the starting point. Well, ignoring the split infinitive, there's no doubt that is the target, and far be it for us to disagree with Innes on anything, but in this case, Innes, I think that is their starting point. But his balanced thinking did say the Greens deserve some credit for drawing attention to our Byzantine and outdated public finances and tax system. Innes then turning the argument, surprise, surprise, into the need for further reducing taxes on billionaires and super profits, making the Greens' fallacious argument even more fallacious. Tax them less, not more. This would be an enormous benefit to all of us. Treacle down, I know, a trickle down and all that. And taxing billionaires and super profits even less would have the full support of the Socialist Party. Well, Innes didn't say that, but we can be sure Anthony would. But Anthony also showed he can disagree on important issues. Like when his predecessor, Little Billy Shorten Ambition, reckoned Big Supremo scuttled them more lash son, a.k.a. Scummo, practised a double standard in flying home to Sydney for Father's Day when so many families were in lockdown, and Anthony got stuck into Little Billy and said he totally supported scuttle them. My, can't we look forward to some gripping debates when the election finally comes around. Uh, Thank you, Big Supremo. Mr. Albinguzi, it's your turn. You have ten minutes. I don't need that long. I, I agree with everything he said. Back to our starting point. Why do the great practitioners of the greatest little economic order campaign relentlessly for cut after cut after cut in corporate taxes when it's purely academic? They they don't pay them in the first place. 
although we can understand them opposing the Greens' idiotic proposal because they'd have to spend a bit of their not-so-hard-earned on their tax lawyers and accountants to avoid the new impost, while, of course, meeting our legal tax obligations, forced to repeat the frenetic street meetings and campaigning the last time a socialist government tried to introduce the super filthiest rich resources profits tax, which saw Gina et al. ensuring us it would be the end of society as we know it. And thankfully, there's not the slightest risk of Anthony making the same mistake as his predecessor. So the poor dears are as safe as their excessive profits. Although Anthony must have lost control of his health spokesperson, Mark Notter-Battler, who came up with a Freedom of Information document he claimed showed Scummo and Health for Profit Minister Greg Haunt the Sick were offered vaccines but did nothing about it. The big pharma company saying it could provide millions of vaccine doses by the end of 2020. And that's where Anthony's out-of-control man came unstuck. As Greg explained, when they told Troubler-Wazzy they could provide millions, they didn't mean they could provide millions. They meant for the whole world, not Troubler-Wazzy. Greg and Scuttle them able to decipher that interpretation from the obviously coded, we could provide millions of vaccine doses by the end of 2020. Oh, sure, Greg, of course, we should have all known that. Thus, he put the socialists right back in their place. Well, that Mark not a battler is a loose cannon. He was only transferred to the health shadow bit because as climate change spokesperson, he ridiculously and dangerously thought his job was to do something about climate change, if there is such a thing. Anthony can't risk spokespeople who will upset the government. Mentioned last week that our minister will be going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Marie's pain in there, and minister for being offensive and trained killing Constable Peter Duffer are off to the US of the UN of the US of the world to pay homage at the court of big supremo Joe Biden with capital, who will tell us an evil Chinese company holding the lease over the port of Darwin is a security risk to the whole region. Not that Pete needs convincing. He agrees and, and wants to tear up the lease because he also wants more US of Marines send in the Marines stationed in Darwin because they're not a security risk. And just before departing on the pilgrimage, Pete addressed the US of Chamber of Commerce in Tuvaluazi. The mind boggles at the impression that would have given them. But Pete urged the US of to share intellectual property for missiles so we can keep evil China at arm's length. By my calculation, evil China is quite a few arm's lengths from True Blue Aussie, but Pete wants arms to keep the arms at arm's length. Intellectual property, Pete. Like, you know, uh, uh, like, you know, yes. By the way, Pete, have you considered the legal implications and costs of tearing up the port lease? Uh, uh, like, uh, huh? Oh, he's obviously thought that one through. No doubt one of Pete's iconic heroes would be, well, as we go back to the future after 20 years invading Afghanistan, or correction, bringing the great benefits of Western civilization to Afghanistan, we might think the little warmongering, bald-headed bloke who was big supremo back in those dark ages 
could at least have the decency to retreat into lockdown and save us the wisdom of his ignorance. But no, he popped up again this week after a UN of the US of the UN of the world climate official Selwyn Hart said industrialised nations, including True Blue Aussie, must stop using coal by 2030, arousing the little bald-headed bloke's angry defence on behalf of all of us. It never ceases to amaze me that people want to destroy one of the most valuable export industries that this country has. It really does, which also has the benefits of helping lift the living standards of still quite undeveloped countries. It really does. Well, yes, and some of them need to be lifted, but sadly can't be lifted as they sink into the briny. And he repeated that renewables can only survive with massive government subsidies they don't deserve. Where has he been since the country, including his own seat, threw him out? Still good to see his party and its coalition partner, the Hayseed and Sheepshit Lot, aided by the giant mind of Barnacle, still wallowing back in the dark ages with him. Like Scummo, we've just been advised the profits from exporting pollution trumps uh, saving the planet, and Scummo and his Her Most Gracious Majesty's home country counterpart Boras agreed profits from trade also trump the end of the planet. Scummo convincing Boras ignoring climate change, if there is such a thing, was the right thing to do. Emphasis, of course, on right, which should bolster Boras's credibility as he prepares to host a talk fest aimed at the end of the planet. By the by, this is true. When I typed agreed profits from trade, I found I'd missed the A and it read greed. Was that a Freudian or was that a Freudian? Those parties certainly seem to be a magnet for great thinkers, bringing us to this week's definition of desperation and back to the future. The fact that the state-caring business class party reverted to the bloke who got thrashed in the last election, that lobster with a mobster bloke, indicates their depth of talent, as Matthew, he's the lobster with bloke, looked at the camera and told us very sincerely, I want all Victorians to know... I'm on your side, which is the most depressing news I've heard for a long time. Unless Matthew, of course, has seen the light and is intent on destroying capitalism, the greatest little economic order, and I've got this feeling that he hasn't and isn't. He did say he wants to put a dedicated mental health expert in every school. Wonder how many mental health experts are not dedicated. Anyway, I'm sure, I'm sure after the next election we'll be demanding a mental health expert in every household that voted for him. The Institute of Public Very, Very Private Affairs is obviously our national expert on human rights. Obviously. Remember the aforementioned tiny a bit more for the bosses appointed Tim Will son from the Institute to the Human Rights Commission before Tim went into Parliament, Tim qualifying by being a harsh critic of the Commission. And now Attorney General Michaela Koch, the workers, has appointed another Institute graduate, Lorraine on Progress Finlay, as Human Rights Commissioner. Her other human rights credentials, including as a caring business class party candidate and as caring business class women's council president, and especially her expressed opposition to consent proposals for sexual assault and rape cases. And yet, 
hard as it is to believe, the Law Council and the True Blue Aussie of the Year, Grace Tame, have criticised the appointment and reckon such appointment should be through an open and participatory process. Good grief, how dangerous what that might lead to. And as Michaela pointed out, Lorraine on Progress is eminently qualified. Is she what? And it confirms Scummo's genuine concern for women. Finally, and a serious finally this week, on this 9-11, as our American friends would say, 11th of the 9th, as we would say, one of the few Americanisms taking over our language that we haven't yet adopted forcibly, and as we are saturated with 20th anniversary coverage, let us remind ourselves of the events on this day 28 years earlier, 1973, when a CIA-orchestrated coup murdered Salvador Allende, the elected leader of Chile, installing the butcher General Augusto Pinch of Shit, leading to thousands of murders, tortures, disappearances and displacement, all supported by the US of... Indeed, our current 3CR chairperson was a young Chilean refugee in that dreadful period. Good morning. Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855am. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. And I should let you know, listeners, you fabulous people out there, we actually reached our target, our $250,000 Radiothon target for 2021, all down to you, you wonderful people. Uh, And uh, special uh, praises to the Concrete Gang and, of course, uh, Talk Back With Attitude. Uh, I think there were a couple of other programs that really surpassed themselves. Uh, Obviously, the listeners out there love uh, 3CR and we love you. So thank you very much. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we're coming up to the last half hour of Solidarity Breakfast. And uh, I uh, had the uh, pleasure of uh, listening to a couple of uh, different uh, webinars over the week uh, and I've taken um, some slight pieces from them. You can see, uh, you can listen and and watch uh, the full uh, complement of uh, these webinars. Uh, But uh, these are the things that actually grabbed me. First up, we're going to listen to a slight uh, extract from Lasnet's latest um, webinar called Extractivism is Not Development. And it's Carlos Sore who opened up proceedings. Uh, He's from Ecuador. And the most uh, uh, eye-opening... I mean, if... if, uh, if this is your area of concern of activism, you will be aware of this, but uh, it is such a uh, eye-opener to hear from people from other parts of the world who are facing the same issues that we face in Australia uh, and that our capitalists are actively undermining their communities and their environment is very, very a sore thing to listen to. Hello, I would like to invite our first speaker. He's uh, Carlos Sorrilla. He's at the moment uh, in Ecuador, but I will pass it to Liz. 
Hi. Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, Carlos, uh, we're working in solidarity with Carlos um, and a few other people in particularly the northwest of Ecuador um, because we have um, multiple Australian companies mining. They're um, it will exp exploring at this point um, in the area, which Carlos will explain um, is uh, one of the most biodiverse regions in the world. It's got um, you know the, indig the indigenous lands of the Awa people. It's um, got communities. It's got source water areas, and we've got BHP. We've got Sol Gold. Um, uh, Hancock Prospecting or uh, if, if, um, Han Ryan, owned by Gina Reinhardt. Um, and a total of across Ecuador, we've got about um, of about 3 million hectares of Ecuador that are currently under mining concessions from multinational companies all over the world. Um, about where we at last count, which was three years ago, so this will be desperately out of date now. The mining um, registry in Ecuador, the cadastro, is being updated all the time. But about thirty-six percent were Australian companies um, in Ecuador, so it's quite a serious problem. Um, and Carlos is has been an anti-mining activist for um, decades, which he will explain. I'll hand it over to you, Carlos. Yep. Well, thank you for the invitation, for the chance to let other people know what's going on in not only our region, but Latin America in general. Ecuador is just a reflection of what's going on all over uh, this beautiful continent. Yeah, I've been involved in anti-mining since uh, 1995, when the Japanese came in to try and open a copper mine. And they were driven out by the communities. And then the Canadians came in 2004, and they were driven out by the communities in 2009. And in 2012, the government signed a deal with Chile uh, to develop the mine with Codelco, the world's largest copper producer. And they couldn't go in being the nice guys, so they brought in police and military, and they installed themselves in primary cloud forest. And the way they go about trying to buy leaders and trying to get the social license happens, it's pretty much the same everywhere. If uh, they try to be nice, to play the, the role of the nice guys, giving people and offering things, roads, computers for schools, medicines for uh, the clinics, They'll do anything to get the, the approval. And it usually works. Money works in most cases. In our case, because of a long struggle, it was harder for the mining companies. That's why they had to use the police and military. And they had the same thing happened north of us in the, in the same province not too long ago with the uh, Hendrine, well, with Hancock subsidiary here. They couldn't go in the nice way, so the government helped them, and 500 police and military escorted them to the mining site. So this is becoming a norm in Ecuador. There's a lot of opposition, and the companies threatened to take Ecuador to the international tribunals if they are not allowed to work in their mining concessions. And that's a, an interesting aspect of mining, transnational mining companies. 
is that these governments sign bilateral trade agreements or investment protection agreements. And then the, the, the countries feel obligated to support transnational mining no matter what the cost. Gross human rights abuse, uh, despoiling primary cloud forests. In our case, they found copper in this beautiful primary cloud forest region, very steep. Uh, there's hundreds of species facing ex extinction. And you didn't, you heard me right, hundreds of species facing extinction in this area. It rains uh, between three and five meters. It's, it's a very, very challenging environment. And it will be one of the most devastating mining projects in the world because of the ecological and geological conditions of the area. But it, it has become becoming a modus operandi with a mining company's first try to go the peaceful way. That doesn't work out a lot. And it, they eventually demand that the government supports them. In our case, I mentioned it was copper, but it's the same. It could be gold, the two most sought after commodities right now in Ecuador. Uh, Chile is lithium, Argentina, copper, gold, and lithium. In, in our case, it's mostly copper and gold. And yeah, it, 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 the title of the uh, the talk was interesting, the uh, extractivism is not development. It would be nice in a, in a rational world, we would stop talking about development and start talking about well-being. Because when people, they associate development or, or wealth to monetary or material wealth, which is only one type of wealth. And unless we get those values right, unless we realize that there are many, many kinds of wealth, social, cultural wealth, environmental wealth, the wealth of the land, the, the fertility of the land, for example, the biodiversity, those are all wealth that the companies and the government never, never take into account when they, when they permit all these mining projects. One of the things that we've been doing in the time we've been working, uh, it'll be soon 27 years, is to try and educate the people, make them aware of these other types of wealth. And what really, what you sacrifice when you allow large scale mining into your area. You lose, you destroy all this other capital, all this other wealth, just to focus on what's the wealth below the ground. And the wealth above the ground is what we need to really focus on. And it's very difficult, as uh, some of your activists know, money is a very strong, a terrific, uh, powerful pool, tool for the mining companies. And then the idea of what development is, People think, a lot of people think development, of course, is having a car, high paying job. They don't really think about having a peaceful society and having rivers that you can swim in and not worry about being sick or fishing from a river and knowing that it's healthy food, growing organic food. That type of, that's what I mean, that type of well being doesn't compute 
into these extractive projects. And one of the things that we all can do is trying to emphasize that the wealth above the ground is much greater than the wealth underground. And I, I'd, I'd like to hear some of the stories uh, from your corners of the world about how you confront this idea of development because it is so entrenched and it's so dominant. It's very, very difficult to overcome. And so this is what, what's happening now. Where I live in Intan, my house and my forest is concession to BHP. My whole community is concession to BHP and about 90% of this beautiful watershed. There was no at all, no consultation, neither with the communities or the local governments. So BHP just went, goes in there and they try to develop the mine. They were, their presence was firmly rejected two years ago. And today I got a phone call about a half hour ago, a friend of mine saying that there's some people uh, asking where they could set up a camp, a mining camp. It could be BHP, but something to highlight is that these companies have money and they have time and they'll just try and wear you down over and over again. And this is what you fight against. This distractive industry is very powerful. In our area, there's really no indigenous communities. There's campesinos communities, which have less rights than indigenous communities. So the only thing that counts here is awareness. And this is what's kept mining companies. There's no open pit mines. There's no large scale mines where we are. We managed to stop it for 26 and a half years. Codelco's in there now. They did exploration, but they, they have not been able to go forward with exploitation. And if, uh, if, if they do go ahead, it will be one of the most devastating mining projects in the world. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. And you're with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast, and we're going to give the last word to uh, Edie Shepherd. She was uh, part of a panel that was uh, put on by the uh, Life uh, Group. That's uh, Living Incomes for Everyone. They had a they're running a tutorial series, and the last tutor, the second in their series, Indigenous Action, uh, included Edie. Shepherd. Now, Edie is uh, part of uh, Get Up, and uh, she is also a First Nations woman. And um, Carlos, in the last piece, wanted from Ecuador, wanted to hear some stories from uh, the, uh, the same uh, area of fight on our country, and Edie supplies it. The main campaigns that I we put heaps of time and energy and effort into in terms of like organizing capacity building resource and that sort of stuff um, is fracking in the Northern Territory. So at the moment, 
oil and gas corporations have licenses over 70% of the Northern Territory, which is an unbelievable amount of like of country and an unbelievable amount of landmass. Um, and for over 10 years, traditional owners ride across the territory. So the Beetaloo Basin in particular is um, bigger than Sydney. Like this one area is bigger than Sydney. Um, and we have a particular co- corporation that has a license that is literally twice the size of Tasmania, which is just like an unbelievable amount of space. But for 10 years, traditional owners have been saying, no, we don't want this. You have no consent. There is no free prior and informed consent. Um, And we have conservative governments from both major parties, I would argue they're both conservative, um, who, as I'm sure people are probably like fairly across, are pretty wedded to gas as an idea. But there's a couple of things in particular. I don't campaign on the climate. I campaign on consent, right? Um, And traditional owners across the NT have repeatedly and persistently for 10 years said no because they were not told of what the process would take, which is actually like, it's quite a violent process. They drill over two kilometres into the earth and pump it full of chemicals that have been known to cause cancer to basically explode the rock underground to suck out gas. Um, and the, the particularly scary thing about the Northern Territory is it's quite a dry place, right? It's pretty dry. Um, so 90% of the territory like relies on underground bore water and it's one big aquifer. And if they drill down and there's one spill, that's it for water across the territory. Um, without water, there is no survival. Like it's, it's actually mind boggling that this is something that anyone is persisting with in a process that has been banned in multiple places, including States here on this continent, um, has been banned as a process because it's so dangerous Um, So that's one of the things I work on. And the other major campaign that I work on is around cultural heritage. Um, Folks probably saw last year the the disaster that was Jukun Gorge, the absolute fucking tragedy um, of a 46,000-year-old sacred site being blown up for expediency by Rio Tinto. Um, And that really cracked open a conversation that, that we haven't, we haven't had as a nation in a very, very long time. Mm. I'd say probably not, not since the epic land rights movements that my family were part of in the 60s and 70s. So I kind of, I consider this work a continuation of that legacy. Um, but what happened in WA, as appalling and as shocking as it is, is completely legal and happens literally everywhere across this continent on a daily basis. Um, there's some, everything sits with ministerial discretion. So whether it's, the WA legislation, so um, God, Ben Wyatt, that's his name, signed off the explosion of Rio Tinto without consulting traditional owners. In New South Wales, where my mob are from, Wiradjuri mob, there have been 700 applications to stop the destruction of, over 700 applications to stop the destruction of sacred sites, and five have been approved. That Mm. is the scale of destruction of country and culture, and what I will say about that is that without country and with our site, without our sites, we, we aren't Aboriginal people. Our culture and our law and our custom all comes from that place that we are from. Ben Wyatt and WA, they're related. Um, but Ben Wyatt's from the ALP. Sorry, just reading from the chat. Um, so the protection and the preservation of, of country is, is pretty existential as Blackfellas. So that's kind of, that's the space that I work in as well as providing um, 
support to families who are running campaigns around Aboriginal deaths in custody. We're learning just how horrible things are for First Nations communities in western New South Wales, Will Kenya and other towns out that, that way. To what extent are the are similar communities in, uh, say, uh, uh, Queensland and Northern Territory uh, learning how to prepare for the inadequacies, if you like, of government bureaucratic support for dealing with the pandemic? Uh, Edie, your reflections on this? So... I, from my dad's side, I'm Wiradjuri, um, which means that I, my ancestral territories, my family are in Western New South Wales, particularly in Dubbo. Um, So I'm feeling this on like a range of levels, including the fact that the first Aboriginal person to pass because of COVID is from my community. Like it's been a very big week. Um, I think that what is happening in Western New South Wales is an extension of the frontier wars. This feels like an act of genocide and I don't want to sound like I'm like I'm really over the top, but 18 months ago when our communities across Australia wrote to Ken White, wrote to the government, were like, okay, this is going to be a disaster when it gets in. Can we have beds? Can we have ventilators? Can we have adequate housing? They sent children-sized body bags to a community in the Kimberley. That was the government's response to help at the outbreak of this pandemic. Child-sized body bags. It is very difficult to try to understand this in any other way other than an act of state-sanctioned violence when that's the response. And what we've seen over the last week, as well as the health service out in Wilcannia, wrote a very like wrote very similar correspondence to Ken Wyatt 18 months ago. And yet here we are. We have communities who are who have 20 people in a two-bedroom house. How do you isolate? They're isolating in tents. It's, they're predicting now that one in five Aboriginal people have COVID out there, which is, mm. which is phenomenal. Um, and I think that there's, there's a lot of roles that we can play in this, but one of the, one of the things that I would, I would ask everyone listening to this is actually like, there's a lot of noise happening at the moment, right? Everyone's in lockdown. It's hard to get a vaccine. I don't know how I managed to get fully vaccinated, but thank God for that. Um, there's a lot of noise happening at the moment, and it's really, really easy to drown out the fact that there is an oppressed, marginalised group of people who are absolutely staring down the barrel of being decimated right now in Western New South Wales. We're talking about what is it going to take to lock down? No, what is it going to take for those people to survive this? And it's not living in tents and it's not like people are celebrating because they got given the material so that they could hunt roo, so that they could eat out there because there is no food in the community. That's not something to celebrate. It's not something to celebrate that they've sent 20 camper vans out to Western New South Wales. It is a tragedy and a crime that the housing doesn't exist already. Um, and we need, like, we can't, we can't shift the spotlight off this. We can't on any way, shape or form, because this government will take any excuse that it can to bait and switch and pivot away to anything that's not to do with our mob. Um, we need to be loud about it and I need people to be as angry as I am. 
Hi, this is Katie from Little Birdie and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM. We need your help to support public radio and your local music scene. Twenty Years on the Inside is an iconic new podcast series that gives voice to the experience of First Nations people in the Victorian prison system. Twenty Years on the Inside. I'm Vicky Roach, and I'm Kutcher Edwards. This series reflects on twenty years of listening to our mobs on the inside, as part of the Beyond the Bars prison broadcasts. 20 Years on the Inside is essential listening for anyone looking to educate themselves about the realities of life on the inside and the need to end Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander incarceration. Well, a lot of the boys mentioned about being in jail. What you do really isn't who you are. You know, it's how you love your family, it's how you care about your cousins, and it's how you care about your people. That's what, that's what this is about for me. Catch the podcast via the 3CR website or on your favourite podcast app or listen live each Monday at midday. And that's it for Solidarity Breakfast this week. If you want to hear and see Edie Shepherd and the rest uh, and... Uh, the other part of the Indigenous Action Life Tutorial, uh, you should go on to their Facebook page. It's worth a look. It's a fascinating discussion. Uh, Lara Watson from the ACT Youth Indigenous Officer, the uh, First Nations Alliance, uh, uh, and um, also uh, Edie Shepherd, who uh, works at Get Up. Uh, Fascinating stuff. Uh, to, uh, we listen to Carlos Soraya, uh, who is uh, was part of the Lasnet Extractivists Is Not Development session. Uh, we heard from Giles from the Collingwood Community Gardeners, and uh, you should watch out for their uh, uh, online um, petition and also their upcoming event. Uh, uh, Dr. John Minns talked to us about uh, why uh, Tampa 20 years on is important, especially in our political framework. And we heard about uh, the changes to uh, the management of uh, the uh, Great Ocean Road uh, uh, parks. Very interesting. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents, and I thought it was worthwhile to go out with Kutcher Edwards after uh, hearing about uh, um, what Edie had to say. The song is called Hope, um, although, of course, they do say hope is not a plan.
listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.